Thank you, and thank you for having us back. We really appreciate it. As Sam said, we're going to be talking today about how to make better decisions as a team. I know on the schedule it said we were talking about the future, but we're clever like this. We're actually talking about the future in the future, as in tomorrow. So instead, we're going to talk about how to make better decisions as a team. And, you know, uh, last night we're starting to think, is this exciting enough? This seems pretty boring. I think we need to figure out how to jazz this up a little bit. You know, be super inspirational and get people really fired up about making decisions. And so we thought maybe we need to rename the talk. And so we thought maybe this is what we needed to call it, which is what we really want to find out, right? I mean, who doesn't want this? Who doesn't want their who team doesn't? to agree with you? Uh, but you know, we thought about it and uh, decision making isn't super inspiring. Uh, it's not super sexy. And you know the word sexy, you shouldn't be using that in a workplace anyway. But I thought about it and I was like, you know what, we're not gonna do, we're not gonna do this. Because for me, as a designer, day in, day out, practicality is sexy. So instead we decided to talk about this because it's soup to nuts, it's the, it's the spine of everything that we do as designers, whether it's just a design team of one or a design team of 20 and 2,000 engineers, it really doesn't matter. So we wanted to make this where we kind of give you practical everyday tools to make your decision-making process applicable, traceable, and repeatable. I'm sure there's other bubbles that will come up, but those are the big three for us. So applicable, meaning it actually works with what you're doing. Traceable, which it's super easy to figure out what went wrong once something has gone wrong, but knowing who to blame is just as important as knowing who should get the credit. And repeatable, it's easy to avoid mistakes, but it gets really difficult to replicate your successes. So this is kind of a process that we've put together with lots of product teams, um, both you know, as our own shop, but also before we had our consultancy together. And we hope that you uh, find this useful. Yep, so the talk breaks down like this. We're gonna talk briefly about why making decisions on teams is so painful. We probably have all of our own horror stories that we could share. We'll get to that in a moment, but from there we're going to go into actually what are these practical techniques we can use from the beginning to end of decisions with a team, because the problem isn't how we make decisions, the problem is how we relate and figure out with people that work in other disciplines how to make those decisions. Well, the problem again, is always other people. Yeah, exactly, other people. And then we're going to talk about what, is, what should you try first? You know, when you go back to work on Friday or Monday, it's like we were going to give you a lot of stuff. Well, from there, what's like the first thing? If I do this one simple thing, well, as we know, decision making isn't simple, but by tweaking your process, you'll see some immediate improvements. And we're going to leave a substantial amount of time for open QA or therapeutic venting about those painful experiences. This is a dialogue because we know a lot of decision making is contextual. It's happening in the moment. So we want to, we can, we can talk about that. And we have our experiences, you have yours. We'll bring them together. It'll be a party. Sound good? Woohoo! Decision making. Yes, decision making party. Yes. All right. So let's talk about why making decisions on teams is so painful. I think it, actually I could summarize this in one word, just, just one word, people. People, people, that's, that's why it's so painful to make decisions. And actually if you wanna break it down from there, if you talk about people, it's really four things about people. We aren't always rational. I mean designers 
designers are always rational. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, we aren't good listeners. Well, if we were able to actually listen to other designers and got the time to listen to other designers, I think we would probably be better listeners. What was that? <laughs> we struggle with other people's input. Well, the last time somebody from engineering, oh wait, the last time somebody said something from marketing that I actually cared about was never. And lastly, but certainly not least, we are conflict avoidant. Well, if you're always right, there's no conflict. No, that's true. That's a very good point. Of course I'm talking about other people, not myself. Never. Never. But that's the thing, is that, you know, imagine in your head, you're, you're at your desk at work, and you're working on a product, and it's pretty complicated, and you're working with engineering and marketing, and you've got a product manager, and one of your team members comes up to you, and they're just like, oh, I made this decision about this product. It's going to be so much better, and they show it to you. And as they're explaining to you the decision, you're like, oh, my God, this is, this is terrible. This is what you're doing to the quality of this product is terrible. And you just keep listening, and you're nodding your head, but inside you're really frustrated. You're tired of this. This keeps happening. Nobody ever apologizes. It's just not worth fighting over in this one situation. And even though you're asked for your point of view, but come on, that's not the case. It's not fine, and yet we slip into these situations where we're participating in team decision-making, but we're not speaking up. We're not taking responsibility about the, the, the quality of the decision-making. And individual decisions always end up becoming team decisions. In the end, when you're making a big, complex product, the team made it. You contributed from a design perspective, but everybody comes together to make it. So, when it comes to the design of it and the quality of the design of it, yes, it starts with you using logic and reason, listening, incorporating input, and doing that even if you may be a bit conflict avoidant. It sounds super easy, right? 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 Well, there's my role in the situation, but how do I make sure when I'm collaborating with other people, if we're all participating in the decision-making process, that we work together? And that's what the lion's share of this talk is about. It's like, how do you work with your team to make the better decision? So this is where we get into like tangible tools, specific activities you can do with your team that allows you to facilitate from beginning to end the decision-making process, and not just for things that are design decisions, for product decisions, for business decisions, for the bigger things, and how you do that even with executive stakeholders. So the start to finish of decisioning, if that's what this is. So, Let's start at the beginning of things. The beginning of the things is we need to make a decision. We need to focus on what the decision is. And decision making gets really blurry when you're working on teams, especially when you're upstream in product development. And it's your job to make it clear, to help focus the team on the, what those decisions are. And you live it every day, probably, where you're like, okay, we're working on this product. And we start a discussion and we're focused on like one detail, one part of what the overall product is. And then after just one or two minutes with a couple of team members... Wait, when did we end up doing a jacket? Wh who's the customer we're designing this for? Is that real fur? Can we change the art direction on that photo? Can we, like, go reshoot that? I hate that color. Oh, so the magic phrase, the starting of all of this, to say, like, we're moving into having to make a decision, is let's focus, we have to make a decision. This is an important signal, because you're asking the team to converge on something, to make a decision, to make a choice that's moving forward the project development process. It's not about 
how you made previous decisions and they can't be unwound and sort of like complaining about that. And it's not about soliciting critique or feedback because that's about expanding the options or improving the quality of what you might be making a decision about. We're talking about the actual point you're gonna make a choice. This makes sense, right? But it gets so blurry, especially when you're on those early stages of working with products. So we like to do an activity where we're working with teams where we actually get everybody in the team to start answering some very basic questions, but it gets everybody aligned about what it is you're actually deciding about. So, so we're saying the word activity, and I see these looks of fear where people are like, are they gonna make us stand up? No, no, we're just gonna walk through the activity. You don't actually have to do anything, it's okay. Yep, unfortunately. It's not that we, much fun. Unfortunately, we don't have $10,000 in unmarked bills that are scattered throughout the room. And if you got into teams, then you could make decisions about who gets the money. That's Though, seriously, we talk. are totally doing that next so, time. But, okay, great. Round two. Bag full of cash next time. All right. So, questions. Why are we making this decision? It's like, what is it about this decision that as a team is actually advancing what we're trying to do, working on this product, on this line, whatever it is that we're doing, getting everybody's perspectives, because somebody who's working in marketing or engineering may have different motives for why that decision needs to happen. You need to get that on the table. And then, of course, the decision should be in the service of making a better product in the end, especially if you're coming at it with your designer's point of view. So again, figuring out what everybody's motivations are as to that decision, being like, okay, as a result of this equality, the product is going to go up in these ways, these specific ways we can talk about. Then it comes down to like who the decision is actually impacting. It's like, yay, we should totally change all of this. Well, does that impact the manufacturer? Does it impact another department in your organization? Does it impact you? You need to understand that as the calculus of the decision, so that way it's part of the weight of the decision making. There's the matter of the deadline of sort of when it needs to be made by. It's just not, not just a matter of being like, well, in two days we have to get this to get it a prototype made. It might be a matter of like, no, we're doing this because we're in a cycle of seasonality, or we're doing this because, oh my gosh, we need to make another million dollars this year, whatever, whatever the reasons are. And then who's responsible for the outcome of this decision? And often when you ask this question, it's like, wow, we just discovered that the person who actually holds the bag on this product isn't here and we're about to make a decision. How can we like pull them into the process? It's a matter of like who needs to be there to, act, to be part of the decision making itself. So when you figured all that out, it's just a matter of like, okay, we have a sense of how much time we have to make a decision. We have a sense of what the decision is that we're trying to do and it might be something about an idea, it might be something about a feature, it might be something about marketing, whatever it is. Then it helps for the whole team to step back and say, what's going to make this decision actually successful for us? And you, there's two types of answers. One is that we need to make a decision. Whatever it is, you know, whatever shade of blue it is, it needs to be a shade of blue, blue go. Decide that rather than, uh, is this the right selection of blues possible to position our line against our competitors? It has to be the right blue. Okay, that gives you a sense of the level of rigor and the debate that's going to go into the decision as it happens. Is this making sense? Do I, I, need a, I need a subtle nod. Subtle nods. All right. <laughs> so from there, once you understand, like, okay, we're going to make a decision, usually people rush into talking about what options are on the table. And we think that's backwards. Actually, we think you should be talking about the criteria by which you're going to be making that decision. I love talking about criteria. It gives me a sense of control. The thing is, is that a lot of us work at companies where maybe there's a very defined decision-making process, or we are already like super experts in decision-making. If you are that person, find someone probably sitting next to you because they probably work at a company where they're like, stuff gets made. 
or that the decisions upstream or downstream, there's no visibility from a team. Criteria can really be helpful for this. So this is one of the first things that we teach people how to do. So, super easy, criteria, they're the standards by which you judge. I mean, decide, but I like judge. And you're going to need to pick some before you make your decision. We have found that there are two types of criteria, yes, no, and dynamic. Sherwin's, what does that mean? Let me tell you. So, expert trick. Ones that are yes, no for some people are not yes, no for other people, because people are clever. So, yes, no. These are the non-negotiables. It either has it or it doesn't. Technical requirements, functional requirements, it needs to weigh a certain amount or not weigh a certain amount. Budget, life cycle, et cetera. Oh, but some of you are looking and saying, wait a minute, uh, recyclable materials, that's, that's not really a yes or no. I mean, sometimes it's a certain amount, right? Well, that's what people run into, is that there are criteria that need context before they can become true yes or no non-negotiable criteria. So let's look at those again and see how we sort of tweaked those criteria to make them actually relevant to the decisions that a team are gonna be making. So now we're looking at three kilograms, including saturation, whether it's rain or sweat or snow or whatever. This is a far more yes-no criteria that's easier to follow. Budget, sorry to say, that rarely changes. And now maybe we're looking at 30% post-consumer. Yes, there's a scale of what it actually means to be post-consumer in different parts of the world. You can make that into a criteria, to, a criteria as well. It's great. So this is the stuff that nobody, there is, there's no solution that is 28%, right? It just doesn't happen. This is a great way to look at innovation opportunities, where if everything you've got right now is not meeting one of these yes-no criterias, ooh, let's figure out how we can do it. Can we make the solution and bump it 5%? Can we make the solution and make it cheaper? Dynamic, these are the fun ones. These are the ones that, oh yeah, we have to get, talk more about this one. Yeah, because so yes or no's are the constraints and the more that you have, the more focused you are. So before I was a designer, I have a degree in poetry. And constraints are evil because they stop the creative process. Constraints are beautiful. They cause you to focus, they cause your team to focus, and it stops a lot of the aesthetic issues. And it also stops a lot of the inter-team friction between what engineering determines as a criteria versus what development might be thinking of, marketing, designers. So those yes or no, Commit them to paper. Write them down. Uh, especially things about a per particular brand aspect. They're in people's minds, but we don't actually write them down. We can't actually find the thing that says it has to be this way. It might be in the brief, but Probably as we not. know, often what is in the brief is not a deal breaker, yes, no. It is something that is not absolutely clear. So go in going through the design process, we have to get more specific. So when we make decisions, we can say, this is something that's a hard line, and it clearly helps us make a decision between one or another option. So dynamic, the fun ones, things that designers like. I also did many years in trenches and content strategy, and this is also the fun ones. So 
these are all the things that are relative. And this is where you hear magical phrases like on brand, monetized, ease of use. Things where you're not really sure. They're a little squishy, shall we say. And designers are using these terms more often than any other group on any team. It's just sort of the nature of the beast. So before you make a decision, you need to list out what all of those criteria are that your team believes is relevant. So decision-making by yourself, super easy, because I nine times out of 10 agree with myself. But when I have to make decisions with other people, it gets a little tricky. Because I have to consider not just what I consider relevant for myself, for my profession, for the discipline that I am in, the place that I sit in the company, I also have to think about what the team, which more and more is cross-disciplinary and cross-functional, what they might think is important. So we have criteria that we run into the most with product teams. So there's technical challenge, how easy is it for us to do? And that may be actually machining, it may be parts, it may be time, it varies from team to team. Value to audience, potential to monetize, alignment with brand, a lot of people get tripped up here. Uh, because if you're looking to expand a product line, if you are looking to start something new, if you're under a parent company, alignment with brand being really high may not be what you're looking for. The same is true with the size of your addressable market. Initially, it might be very small, and then it might grow. So make sure you don't fall into the trap of thinking that high is something we always really want, because it's not necessarily. And then uh, level of waterproofing, this is my favorite one to put up, because technically we know that this is dynamic, but depending on the knowledge level of our customers, they may not. They may see the world as corduroy or plastic, silk or umbrellas. It's either waterproof or you're toast. So it's important to keep in mind what you as a team consider dynamic versus the way that your customer might see certain criteria. This is all pretty straightforward. It's not too difficult. So then, wait, how did we get this twice? We got this twice. Oh, here we go. Now we're scoring. Come up with a score. This is one of the great rules of design. No more numbers than you have fingers. It's actually a good rule for just about anything. No more courses than you have fingers. For bands, no more symbols than you have fingers. You know, it kind of works for most things. Low is one, not zero. We're not those people. And high is five. Though you might do minus one, minus five to show difficulty, your team can agree on what works for them. But the actual number matters less than why your team chose it. You start to benchmark things as you do a comparison. So it makes sense in just a minute. If it doesn't already make sense now. So here's another activity for you. Still don't have to get up. In establishing your criteria, you're going to ask your team what's important. Which criteria apply most to this decision? So each person is going to generate their own criteria silently. So there's two parts to that. If you're on a cross-functional team, the things that are important to you are not necessarily important to other people. You have technical considerations that other people do not. You have timelines, budgets, that other people on your team may not be constrained by. 
You do it silently, because if everyone just sits around a table and talks about their criteria, this is invariably what happens. You will give your criteria, and I will be like, wow, I never thought of that. That's really good. And then I won't say anything. Or, your criteria suck. Mine are so much better. And then I'm going to be like, whoa, 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 and here's my criteria. To work silently first also allows people who are, shall we say, more verbally proficient to step back and have a chance to listen to other people. To work silently first, individually, together, is a great equalizer. Give each other five minutes. Again, there's that rule of five, no more than you have fingers. And ask each other to share what they wrote. If you're in one of those situations where it's not okay to speak your own stuff, throw everything in the middle and then have people pick out criteria. That's also a good one to do. Then prioritize your top three to five. This allows a really good cross-functional idea of what you really need to be looking for. No, if you're not an engineer, you don't really need to be designing with engineering in mind right here. They're not your mom. They're more like the brother you don't want to piss off. So to know what they're looking for, you don't need to know how to do their job, but to build that inter-team empathy for the jobs that people are doing every day is invaluable. And it only takes one meeting like this to be able to understand what other people on your team are thinking about. And then define you know, sort of a rough scale. What does high look like? What does low look like? If you don't have any examples, you soon will. It's one of the great things that comes out of this process. So once you know as a team what the criteria are that you believe are important, now is the time to start talking about what options you're looking at. And what we're saying here is generate enough options. I think the key word here is enough. Really bad decision making often happens because you have really just one option and it's like, are we doing this or are we not doing this? Or you have two options. You're just like, are we doing option A or option B? It's like, well, in those situations, there often isn't enough to really understand what's going on and what the real trade-offs are. So we're not just talking about things that are in design. We're saying if you're talking about a business case or a marketing plan or a feature on a product, you need to step back and think about things as options, as the things that you're going to choose from when you make the decision. And it, so it could be really anything you're making a decision about. And this is past the critique process. This is past getting feedback on early ideas or things that you're working on. This is when you're going to make a decision. And to have enough options mean you need, again, using the rule of five, you need at least five options to debate, to really see the trade-offs between them. Even if one of them, everybody in their gut knows is terrible, just having it on the table throws into sharper relief the ones that have different merits or different attributes that you will expose through the criteria you'll use. So if you're downstream, you need about five options to start to really make trade-offs apparent. If you're upstream, you may have a ton of ideas that you're looking at and that you're evaluating to compare. But the other trap that you fall into in this situation is that really not all the options that you're looking at are equal in terms of the fidelity that you're using. Especially if you're like, oh, we have this late entering idea and you throw in like a low fidelity sketch and everything else is like a high fidelity rendering or it's something that's like shown in C2, you're like, oh, you know, we should be considering this too. As human beings, it's really hard to look at these things comparatively fairly and make trade-offs apparent if one of them is literally 
harder to understand in relationship to the others. So you either have to raise it to a much higher fidelity if you care that much about it to make a decision, or you have to drop it out of the process at that point. So that's just something that for us we've seen cause teams, especially in the design process, trip up over and over again. So you've got your options, you've got your criteria, now comes the magic of comparing them. Yay. Yay. It's cool to compare. So you want to compare the Sorry, just shut myself off. To compare the, idea, the options that you've generated, the tool that we use is a comparison matrix. Maybe you use this too. Do you use these? Comparison Does anyone matrices? use a comparison matrix? If you do, we love you. If you don't, we will love you later. <laughs> I don't want to be judgmental on that. There are several reasons why we love comparison matrix. One, because it has the matrix in it and that will never not be cool. Two, because it's a lot more dynamic and a lot more fle flexible. It looks cooler and yet it's a lot messier. Anyone can do it. And it really throws into true sharp relief the trade-offs that a team is making when they pick an option. So this is usually how comparing ideas and options happens. We take one of those criteria, we put it on a scale, and we throw all the sticky notes up there. This is pretty straightforward. This is what we do. So, you know, the audience doesn't want it. We totally think the audience wants it. And that's where a lot of people stop, right? They have one initiative that is super important. They put it up on the board and they map everything and then that's it, they're done. Let's go have coffee. Or maybe they do two criteria. Well, you know what, the technical challenge thing, got a lot of technical debt going on right now, so you know, maybe we need to really look at this. So let's look at technical challenge and uh, look at how our ideas sort of shift. Oh, but tricky. Do you notice there that uh, technical challenge low and high? Oh. Now let's look at audience low and high. Now those ideas have done something different. Those options are in sharper relief. And if you are incredibly astute, and visually inclined, and clever, you notice that uh, technical challenge, you, if you want something that's easy, you're probably gonna wanna put it at that end. And the reason why is because we are inclined to say up and to the right is the stuff that we want. If you do a whole bunch of these, and we strongly recommend that you do, take all of your criteria and put them on a matrix like this. All of them. Do like a whole room full. If you have one matrix where the good stuff is on the lower left, your team won't remember. They just won't. So you might want to tweak yours so that up and to the right is maybe what you're looking for. If your team is an up and to the left, that's cool. Just make them all the same. Some people really like the lower right quadrant because they feel it's very slick and cool and you know, it's the, it's the things that are most, most approachable. Every team develops some sort of way of talking about where they want to put their ideas. Now, something to really pay attention to, and this is, once you start doing comparison matrices, this is a, skip, a step that people skip, or they don't have time to do it. But on longer term projects, if you've got the time to do it, do it, which is to pay attention to which quadrants are empty. Where do you not have any options showing up? There are a few reasons why this happens. So here, 
you might not be being honest about how you're rating your ideas, about exactly where you're putting your options. This happens a lot when a team believes that there aren't any true options, that they've been told they have to pick option D and that everything else kind of doesn't really matter. Make sure you're being honest about it. It's also possible that you don't have enough ideas in here to really understand what low technical challenge and low value to the audience really looks like. Sometimes that's where your sacrificial bad examples are gonna go. It's also a place to look for great technical disruption, innovation, all of those fancy word opportunities. If you've got something that is easy to make and is of low value, why aren't there anything? Why aren't there things there? There are things there. Maybe you don't make them. Maybe your competitors do. So that serves as an inspiration point for you to come up with new options. So sometimes you may do a comparison matrix that's sort of you know, part and parcel with a you know, market picture. You know, so if you're doing scoping or anything like that, you might have several of these. You can also make them more complicated. If you've developed benchmarks for low, medium, and high, throw some tape up there so people know exactly what you're talking about. These sessions can get really messy, and sometimes people forget exactly what they're trying to map. The great thing about the matrix, the great thing about this matrix is that it can be adjusted. It can be done anywhere. It can be done with tape. It can be done with bar napkins. It can be done anywhere on any surface. Don't do it digitally. Don't develop an app for it. Do it with pen and paper. And each matrix that you do, snap a photo of it. So you know what decision your team made around this particular options. It's messy, it's flexible, it does exactly what you need to do, and it's highly, highly illuminative. The best thing about it is that everyone at first, they're not really gonna completely understand the options. So if you write down what you're learning as you build these, you can revise, you can add options, it completely can flex or contract as you need. So as you do this, you're gonna develop more criteria because there's always something that you forgot, right? So, you know, oh, we forgot to talk about durability or we're uh, trying to figure out what material is gonna be the softest. So we love to talk about soft, right? So you may have criteria which is soft, tactilely, is it soft? But then marketing might say, hey, you know, uh, we've been talking to the team over in branding and they want something to look soft. Now we have two criteria for the word soft. So it's not less soft to more soft. Now we're talking about look and we're talking about feel. So as you go through this process, you're gonna have more criteria. And those little aesthetic qualities will unlock in your head and they will become part of your team vocabulary. For you. All right, so at this point, if you've looked at your options, you're just like, okay, we have a really good understanding of what we've got on the table. Now we're gonna make a decision. It's like, yes, we're making the decision. And this is where we slide into our habits as designers, especially when we do things like critique, where we start talking about the options that we like more or less. It's like, oh, I like this idea more. Well, I don't know, I kinda like this idea too. Maybe, maybe this one over here. 
What we've discovered in working with a lot of different product teams across industries is that there's a particular strategy that gets used that's more effective than things like voting with a yes and no for each choice or prioritizing your top picks or stack ranking. You see a lot of decision-making systems use these types of things, but the system that we've seen work best is using confidence measures. Is anybody here that uses confidence measures with your team? If you're familiar with this concept. Oh, dude, this is, this is gonna be cool. I'm, I'm so excited. This is, so, level of confidence. That's something that you, in working with the team, each of you would assign to the options that you've got on the table. And what you're asking yourself as a team is, which of the options that we're looking at is most likely to lead to the outcome that our team needs? And this is something that's the secret weapon when you've got a senior stakeholder or a CEO or somebody in the room and you're showing them, here's the five options that we're choosing for this product. And they're just like, I'm no. saying no to all of them. It's like, you don't get to say yes or no. You get to tell me, what is your confidence level regarding each of these concepts? And then when you hear that confidence level back from them, they assign it a number. You say, why did you say this one is 50%? This one is 20% and this one is 65%. And then they share with you valuable feedback that helps you better understand where there may be misses in the work that you're doing and where there might be opportunities to actually make a choice and make revisions downstream in the process. And that doesn't trip up what's happening in the decision making. So simple activity to do this with your team. When you've got all the options on the table, you understand and have evaluated them with some, your criteria that you've chosen, you say for each person, you know, sit there and individually write down your confidence numbers for the options that we've got and use percentages. If it's 100%, that's high confidence. That means I know based on all the discussion that we've had that this particular option is absolutely the right decision for me. 0%, I've got no confidence in this decision. All the information that we've got tells me that this option will lead to an unsuccessful outcome based on, at the beginning, focusing on what the point of the decision was and what's gonna make it successful. Then, whomever is facilitating this process, they add up the numbers and it may be weighted because you may have a stakeholder that's just like, I'm the final decision maker. It's like, well, obviously we care about the way you rate things in terms of confidence. After you've done this, then as a team you discuss what the level is that you need to move forward with your decision. Instead of saying at the beginning, oh, it has to be 75% for us to move forward with an option, at the end you look at the numbers and you say, okay, great, now what is the threshold of risk that we're gonna accept with the options that we've got based on our confidence? Going through this process completely changes the calculus of how the team debates and understands the options and then accepts the decision based on the numbers of confidence. So often what we see teams do is they say, well, we've put all that time into the criteria and we've got a scoring system. Maybe we should be using that scoring system because there's one option that scored super high, so that means the one I should assign highest confidence. This is not a good habit because the criteria only exists to inform your team on trade-offs and some are non-negotiable. You will end up in situations where people will say, oh, you know, the Death Star ended up being the one thing that we want to build because it scored the best in all the criteria, well, except for one. And then it turns out that the one that you care about, which is like, is this thing actually good for civilization? The primary reason why we're making this solution for protecting the Earth from alien attack, it's like, actually, these three we probably shouldn't be doing. I have low confidence in them. Let's do something else like the Battlestar. If you use weighted tables, just remember this. Tables lead to the Death Star the numbers are deceptive. Yep, they are very deceptive. They're deceptive. All right, so you've made a decision and you've got high confidence around it, ideally. 
then it's as simple as sharing the decision. And this is often where teams fall down. They're just like, sweet, we made a decision, and everybody runs off and starts doing their work. And actually, everybody doesn't know that a decision was made, especially the people at a level or a level above what you're trying to do. So it's an opportunity to capture the logic that you just put into this decision and the rigor that's behind it and share it out. Because as you know from having made so many decisions on so many products, there's no decision that is a perfect outcome for your team or for the businesses that you work at, for your customers. There's only the best decision that you're going to make at that time and you have an understanding of the trade-offs as a team. So all you need to do is take what you've learned by going through this process and say, we made this decision, we looked at these criteria, we looked at a range of options, you don't have to share them all. We were most confident in this specific option and here's the plan of what we're doing next. And you just send that to everybody, include the team and the people that weren't present or if somebody was like homesick, it's just like, okay, now I understand in reading this why we made this decision. We understand where we're headed and if I was there, I feel like I was included in the process. And even if I didn't get my way, I'm okay with it because I really understand it. If you, if you work on a team where this process, you're just immediately thinking, this will never work. Just tracking the decision-making process for yourself as a professional, it is an invaluable skill and it can be translated to anything. To know how a team came to a decision, why, who said what and when, and what the impact was. That little summary, even if it doesn't go to the team, just scratch it on the back of your notebook to know how things got done. So it's, it's like an opening this magical box. If you're in a leadership position, this is basically your job all day long. So once people get a sense of all these techniques, they're just like, all right, got it. So what should I be trying first out of all this stuff? And we say, don't try to do all of this at once. Pick one thing. Try it out, see how your team responds, and then adapt from there with the end goal of looking to increase the overall rigor of the process. Criteria. But we've seen when you get criteria right, and you might use criteria, but when you actually up the level of how you think about and use criteria, it has a massive impact on the rigor of decision making, which makes using things like confidence measures work so much better because you've got better input, better output for the process. Now, at this point, there's another group of designers and team leads that we work with that say, you know what, this is all well and good, but we have no friggin' idea how we're actually making decisions today, period. So in working with those teams, we came up with a ritual that helps them figure out where the decisions are happening and who's taking responsibility for them. At the end of every day, you just pull your team together before everybody walks out the door, take five minutes, and you say to each person in the round, what decisions have we made today? What you discover is, okay, here's where people are making decisions, Here, here's who believes they have final say in those decisions, and here's where collaboration is not happening about decisions that are being inherited by the team that do need to be discussed and debated. Once you've done this for a few weeks, then your team recognizes and understands, okay, for these types of points in the um, design process, even though we get together and make decisions about features or the specific products, we have to have another decision happening around things like the use of fabric or aesthetics, whatever those particular details, details are. And if you do this, do it every single day, every day, and do it for about two weeks. And it's especially important for teams that are smaller because there's a lot of times where you're a team of eight, maybe in a company of 10. Or maybe you're in a really, really large company where you're just sort of a cog in the wheel. 
where you're making decisions that nobody is privy to. You're at an office, you're sitting at a desk, and you don't see anyone all day long. And you're having to make critical product decisions, and you're kind of like, yeah, this is what I do, it's my job. I don't have to tell anybody. At the end of the day, I have a thing, and there you go. Asking this question, what decisions today, sheds a light on exactly how much of a burden you and your team may be carrying, exactly where errors are being introduced in the line. It also shows where your team is really shining, where they've managed to take on immense amounts of responsibility without really clear definitions as to who benefits or who doesn't. They've just decided to do the work. They've decided to make those decisions. Every day, two weeks, kind of like aspirin, I guess is what it's sort of sounding like, but, but it works, it really does. So to wrap things up and move on to a little bit of therapeutic Q&A, why is making decisions on teams so difficult? Yes, it's people. But it, it's really because people care, right? Because if we didn't care, it would be easy. It would just be, you know, hell dog at the beginning. This is fine. But we care. We care about being on a great team that makes great decisions, that makes great products, that changes the world and makes everything wonderful. And that's super inspirational and it's super inspiring. But when it comes back down to the day to day, people care about things but it's harder to see the big picture every single day. So without getting overwhelmed by the scope of everything that you do to make great decisions on a team, to make great products in the world, all I need you to do right now is focus on one thing, which is what question you wanna ask in Q&A. And what food truck you're gonna eat from for lunch. Yes. We'll pass you a mic. Oh yeah, we'll give you, we'll give you a mic. Yes. So I really enjoyed that framework and um, I think I might be overthinking it, but have you seen examples where generating criteria or um, generating options themselves become sub-decisions that then have to go through this whole process and then sub-process and sub-process and like where does, where does that go and how does that break down and how do you address that to kind of nip it in the bud and stop it? That's, that's a very good point, because you see this sort of, we've seen this happen where a team sort of ends up in this endless feedback loop. I think what helps is to say, what decisions do we need to make as a team, and what decisions do we need to make individually that the team accepts, because they're the knowledge experts. Like, if you're the designer on the team, you may have the final decision about certain details. Other people might give feedback, but you get to make the decision, and clarifying those boundaries helps stop these situations where it gets into like, well, the whole team has to weigh in on the color, and then the whole team has to weigh in on the zipper, and then the whole team has to weigh in on where the logo goes, and all of a sudden it just becomes like the team has to make all the decisions. The, key, the team can't make all the decisions. So it helps to clarify, like, we need individual responsibility for particular decisions, and there's certain things the team has to provide input on. Clarifying the two gets rid of a lot of those weird feedback loops where people sort of get so into process that it gets in the way of actually shipping products in clear time frames and maintaining quality based on who understands what quality is from their point of view. One, one thing that we've found that can be really helpful for teams is to, and I'm going to say something really unpopular, is to stop using the word trust. Stop using that word. 
and instead use the word expect because it respects the person's experience, it respects their job title, it respects their fiefdom, if you're at one of those types of companies, and lay out the expectations around decision making. Who gets to own what, where, when, why, etc., and be clear about that. So it's not, I trust that you're going to choose the right color. It's, I expect that the decision about color will be made by the end of the week, and if there's any feedback on that, I need to hear it by Thursday. And it's expects. It's not a personal thing. It's you, your job function, the things that your team needs to do. Because trust, really? Like, what if you get a new person on the job? There's no way you trust them, right? It's like some dude off the street. But if they come in with a particular set of experiences, they've got a job title, et cetera, et cetera, there is a professional expectation, not just at your company, but within your team, within the industry of how people are supposed to do things, hold them to that standard. That is not a standard of trust. That is a standard of expectation. And I know that sounds like mean and mean, but I love that word because the work that we do, even the teeny tiny little bits, is important. It's important work. And it's too important to be put with an emotional word like trust and for me, it's better to be put with expectation. Excellence is an expectation that I will have empathy for the people that I work with, that I will try to bring joy to the workings of my team and to my products. That's an expectation for me. I don't want people to trust me to do that. I want it to be expected of me because that's who I am. I don't know if that's helpful but I, I'm seriously, I'm out to get rid of the word trust. I really am. It's such a consumer word. I trust you'll do a good job of that. Wait, thank you. That's, it also sounds like that. Oh, I trust you'll do a good job of that. Any other questions? All right, well, thank you, David and Mary. <laughs>